Hey, good morning, Crossway. I hope you are doing well, and I'm just glad that we can worship together on this very special Lord's Day. Uh, first of all, I want to give a big shout out and congratulations to Gina and Alex, who had their uh, baby girl Ryland this week, seven pounds and one ounce. And so uh, we're praying for you guys and looking forward to meeting Ryland and want to congratulate you. And also, I just want to thank everyone here who is serving behind the scenes, Brian and James and um, you know Veronica and Christian, everyone in the back serving. I want to thank everyone for making today happen. And before I jump into the message, I just want to give us a little update about our church and when we might meet and so on. Uh, we formed a church regathering team, a team of people that will come together and um, plan out um, how we can gather in a safe and a, really a good way. And so we have a few of our deacons, um, Kel and Albert, and we even asked a couple doctors, Jonathan and Henry, Pastor Paul and myself, to come together, think of what, what's, what's the best for our church, uh, when would be the best time. And so uh, we're kind of working through things. June 15th, uh, the governor and the CDC are going to give out an updated guideline for church to meet and so we're going to review that and then uh, come up with a plan. And so uh, we'll have something together soon so we can get together. Um, but we'll also be going online for, the, uh, for a long time. And so either way, you could continue to worship us and uh, worship with us, not worship us, worship with us and uh, join us in that. Um, but uh, we're looking forward to what is to come. And uh, too bad this is live, or we would go back and erase that. But, uh, um, you know, we look at our passage today, and in, it's a very famous passage in Proverbs chapter 3. And basically, in Proverbs 3, it's telling us how we ought to relate to God. What we do with God, or how we respond to God, will dictate the outcome of our lives. Uh, will really change our lives. We'll make it good or make it bad or make it smooth or make it really crooked and difficult. And so how we relate to God is the idea of this passage. And, you know, it's telling us to do three things, to obey, to have an identity in Christ, and to trust. Right? These are the three main ideas. But before we even jump into what we ought to be doing, you know, just a little background. The book of Proverbs is a book filled with not exact promises, but it's given us the moral law of the universe. So if you do A, usually B will happen, right? And some of the things we say, uh, just even in our lives, we say the early bird gets the worm if you get there first, if you get up early. Does it always happen? Not always, but usually. And that's the moral law of the world that we live in. And so much of the Proverbs is a cause and effect pattern in the world we live in. So if you do this, then this will usually happen. And this is uh, the promises that are made here. And no one escapes these laws. It happens to all of us. And in our passage today, it's this cause and effect. If you relate to God in these ways, in obedience, with your identity found in Him, in your trust in Him, these are the now effects. And it's interesting, when you look at this passage, it gives us the effects, uh, the blessings that come from God. Uh, we're just going to stick with this passage, verse 1 through 6. And I just want to, before I jump into what we ought to be doing with obedience, identity, and trust, 
I just made a few observations and I wanted to share these with you. Um, first of all, you'll see the word heart is used three times. One, three, verses 1, 3, and 5. Uh, the word heart is used often in the Bible. Over a thousand times the word heart is mentioned. And it is uh, used to describe various things, uh, various aspects of the heart. It's a little different than our culture today. First of all, the heart is thought of as the central organ, uh, the physical organ of a human being. The heart gives life, basically. And so in Genesis 18.5, Abraham offers food right, to, uh, to his guests so that it would sustain their hearts and they would go on their way. So the idea is if you have a strong heart, it gives life to the rest of your body. So there's a physical sense to the word heart. But also, the heart refers often to the hidden unreachable places of a person, the depth of a person, the mystery of a person. There's this heart of the person. Thirdly, it's the idea of the center of a person. And this might be the best way to define the word heart. It's the center of the person. This is where the emotions, the intellect, and the moral conscience come together, the heart. And so often the Bible talks about the heart. In Peter's sermon in Acts 2.37, it said his sermon cut to the heart. The people heard it and they were cut to the heart. It hit them in the heart. Right? That it hit them in the center of who they are. And we see that three times. So if you follow God, if you relate to God with your heart in these ways, in obedience, in identity, and in your trust, these are now the effects, the cause and effect. Uh, it's interesting, you look at our text today, in verse 2, 4, and 6, and the even verses, these are all the effects. And I just want to kind of jump to the conclusion of this before we jump into what we ought to do. These are all the blessings of God. So if you do A, these things will happen. Uh, verse 2 talks about, for the length of days and years of life uh, and peace, they will add to you. There will be a peace in your life. Uh, the word peace that we need so much of in our lives, right? Um, the word peace is the, obviously it's a word shalom. It's probably the most well-known Hebrew word out there. The word shalom is not just peace or a greeting, but there's two parts to it. One is it's having good fortune. So if you have shalom, you have a blessing, something good. But also the word peace here has the idea of being free from hostility, free from lacking anything, free from anything negative. And so it's a two-part blessing. You receive, but also you don't have any of the negative stuff. Now, many of us, uh, we might receive a lot, but boy, we pay the toll with our you know, bodies and our hearts and our minds. We can't sleep at night and we don't have peace. We might have some good things, but we have to pay that toll. So the idea of peace you can get. Oh, this is priceless. What good is it to have all the money in the world or all the possessions or all the fame if you can't really have this peace, right? And so this text mentions the effect, one of the effects, one of the now consequences of Obeying God is, you have this peace. You'll have the shalom. Not only that, verse 4 gives us another blessing. You will find favor and good success in the, eye, in the sight of God and man. Favor. Right? Uh, positive disposition of heaven. God 
and man, they will look upon you with favor, good success. Uh, that word good success, that little phrase can be translated good reputation. They will assume God will now make sure that things go well for you. And the third blessing we see here is in verse 6. He will make straight your path. Literally to make things smooth. Make straight your path. Somehow trust in Him that He will make straight your path. Things will work out. Things will always work out. Um, you know, it is uh, Bruce Walkie who says in his commentary, one has to have the course of one's life from a bird's eye view to see this, not a worm's eye view. So sometimes you're in the middle of it and you're going through it and it just sure feels like it is crooked and ups and downs. But from a bird's eye view, when you look at the totality of life, you realize if you trust in God, there will be a sense of smoothness, a straightness to this. God will help you. God will figure things out for you. And you probably have been going through a lot of that in the last couple of months. As Boy, day by day, there's a lot of... Uh, lacking of peace and uh, tumultuous spirit. But as you look back on it, somehow God has got us through all the way till now. And so we see this. Now, what's the cause? All of us wants, all of us want these blessings. What's the cause of it? How do I get these blessings? Right? Well, the cause and effect, the first cause is, is obedience. The heart of the wise person obeys God. It says in verse 1, it starts this way. My son, do not forget my teaching let not your heart, or let your heart keep my commandments. Let your heart keep my commandments. Again, it speaks to the heart there that we pointed to. And it says, let your heart keep it. Do not forget my teaching. So it's obedience to God. Do not forget. Uh, it's the idea of not just having a mental lapse, like, oh, I forgot where I put my keys or where I put my phone. But forgetting this, it's the idea of abandoning something. So the writer of Proverbs is using this way of speaking like a father giving advice to his son. Don't forget these things. Don't abandon these teachings. Don't abandon who you are. Don't abandon this word, these commandments. Do not forget. Don't abandon it. Um, and it tells us in verse one, the second part, let your heart keep my commandments. Keep it. It's interesting, oftentimes when we transition from one significant place in life to another, we see a kind of a drop-off. We see people abandoning their faith. You see it when someone graduates high school and goes to college, and all of a sudden their lives change. And they meet new friends and they have newfound freedom and they think, boy, I, I, that was maybe something I did when I was a child, but I'm an adult. And sometimes the uh, people lose their faith or sometimes when they graduate college and they start working and life gets hectic and they abandon the faith of their school years. Or sometimes when uh, a couple has a child, they become so preoccupied and busy, they abandon the ways of old and following after God. But do not forget do not abandon God. And it says to let your heart keep my commandments. To keep something, this word keep in verse 1, it's the idea to guard or to watch over. That same word is used in 2 Kings 79 to describe the watchmen. The watchmen at night, what do they do? They make sure what's inside of the city walls is safe by looking out. 
So they're taking care of the city walls, the, the people in the city, and at night they look out for anything that might invade it. And that's the same picture we have here. It's saying, guard your heart with God's commands and don't let anything that would hinder it come into your heart. You're a watchman over your heart and keep these commandments in your heart. It's like the job of a lifeguard whose one job is to watch the water and make sure no one is struggling to swim or going underneath. It's like the job of a line judge in a tennis match. All they do is watch one line. That's all they do. And the soldier who is in watch, their one task as a soldier, a watchman, is to watch for any enemies that might be coming in, any movements out there. And they keep their eyes peeled all through the darkness of night to see what they could what might come. And in the same way, our hearts are to be guarded in this way. We have to keep watch over our hearts in this way. It's interesting. I love this quote by Eugene Peterson in his book, Eat This Book. He says about obedience, Obedience is a thing living in active response to the living God. The most important question we ask of this text is not, what does this mean? But, what can I obey? Some of you are going to this text, and a lot of us approach it in a scholarly, scholarly way. What does this mean? After some of you are going to be in our equip study, what does that mean? Some of you uh, tune in on Wednesday to our study through Psalms. You say, okay, what does a text mean? Now, what it means is important, but we ought to always approach the Word of God with not just what does it mean, but what can I obey? How can I change? And so even when we gather today for worship, you're listening and saying, is there something new? Is there something novel that I don't know? But more than learning, and more than saying what does the text mean, we have to ask ourselves, what can I obey? What aspect of this do I need to now add on to my life? How can I live this out? It's interesting, Jesus tells his disciples and us in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Uh, he says, well, go, go into the nations, baptizing, right, and teaching them to obey. The concept of discipleship is not learning or just memorizing or knowing theology or reading a book, but it is teaching them to obey something. And in our obedience... Uh, we find the blessings of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, you can only learn what obedience is by obeying. You can only learn what it is by obeying. And if you obey God and His words, and you don't neglect or you don't forget or abandon God's word, it says, here's the blessing that we mentioned before. Verse 2, for the length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Following God and His words uh, it'll lead you in this way. And so we have to be also very careful. You know, uh, uh, about a month ago or so, as we've all been home, um, I decided to buy a, a stationary bike, and it came with these directions. Um, and let me just show you a little picture of this. I think we have it. This is the picture, the first picture that I, when I opened it up, right? You look at that. All right, we can shut that off now, right? It's, uh, um, but you see the pictures there. Uh, and you realize um, 
there was so much. And I remember getting that and thinking, oh my gosh, I have to put on my reading glasses and I better follow this every single step of the way because there's so many different types of screws and washers and pieces and I didn't want to put the seat on backwards. I didn't want to put the pedals on the wrong way. And I had to really pay attention because I knew one misstep and I'd have to take it apart. One lost piece and I, it won't work. And that's how we ought to be careful to obey God's word. Just go there saying, what am I going to do? How can I pay attention to this? Um, be so very careful to obey God's word. The second part is our identity. The heart of the wise person, right? my heart finds its identity in Christ as the son, as the daughter of God. That's our initial, most important identity, our fundamental identity. It says in verse 3, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your heart. It's interesting. That little phrase, steadfast love and faithfulness. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Those two, that phrase there, those two words, steadfast love and faithfulness, is used in Exodus 34, 6, when God declares His covenant relationship to Moses and His people. It's God's covenant relationship being personified in, this, in these two words. It's God Himself being described as steadfast love and faithfulness. And so it's not just so much of being faithful or being now steady in love, but it's really a description of God's covenant relationship with us. So when it says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, it means write down who you are, that you are in a covenant relationship with God, that because through the blood of Christ you are God's child, and that is your number one identity. And it is so important that we understand that I am a Christian before I am anything else. That I am a Christian before I am a husband, before I am a dad, before I am a son, before I am a friend, before I am described by my occupation or my hobbies or my looks. That my identity is found in Christ. Um, there's a story... A tragic accident happened in 2006 at Taylor University in Indiana. There was a van full of students and staff coming back, and they got into a head-on collision with a tractor trailer. And out of the nine people there, five were pronounced dead after this terrible accident. Um, and one of the girls uh, who was pronounced dead by the coroners was a girl uh, named Whitney Sarek. Whitney Sarek was pronounced dead but what was interesting is one of her good friends, who all, they both had blonde hair, uh, survived. And the survivor's name was Laura Van Rin. And Laura Van Rin was uh, in a coma. She was in a drug-induced coma for all the surgeries. Her face was bandaged up, and she was taken to the hospital. And so for weeks, she was in this coma. And when she had come to, as her family, as Laura's family is waiting around all day and night, as she comes to a little bit here and there, she would say odd things. And she would say her name isn't Laura. She would say, point to her parents and say, they're not her parents, they're false parents. And uh, when they talked to the doctors, the doctor said, it's the effects of the drug. She's hallucinating, don't worry about it. And it is in the fifth week when she finally comes to, they realize that this was not their daughter, Laura Van Ryn, but this was now the gal, Whitney Sarek. And so they had been switched. 
there was a funeral that was, had taken place already with 1,400 people in attendance thinking that uh, Whitney Sarek had passed away, but it was actually Laura Van Ryn. They had mistaken the identity of the people, of these two. Do not let anyone identify you by how they see you. Do not let anyone tell you who you are, how you should act, what you should believe. You are a child of God. You are a covenant child of God. It's uh, the story of the prodigal son that I love where the son comes back to the father. The wasteful son comes back. And he comes to his senses. And the first thing he says in Luke 15, 21, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He comes, he had rehearsed the speech just before that he's going to come and work as a slave. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. And the father's response immediately in verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. From the father's perspective, this child was always his son. The son didn't feel like it. The son felt ashamed. The son felt like maybe he had to earn his status as a child. And this is how we might feel sometimes with God that I need to earn something. I need to earn God's favor. I've been so far away. I've been living in a way that God doesn't want me to. Maybe I have to earn my way back to come back to church or come back to God. But God views us as a son and daughter, and we have to come to Him and understand our identity. Let that never leave you. Never forsake that part of your identity. Why? In verse 4, here's the blessing, right, that we went over. You will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Let the identity of who God is, that you are His child, man, let that be around your neck. Let that be on the tablet of your heart. Let that dictate who you are, how you live, how you think. You are God's child first. And thirdly is we trust. How do I relate to God? I trust Him. I obey Him. I identify as his child and I trust him. Verse 5 is probably the most famous verse in all the Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. You think about that. What is a greater compliment to say to someone, I trust you, or to say to someone, I love you, or I care for you? It is, I trust you. There are a lot of people we love that we cannot trust. Um, a parent might love their third grade child but won't say, I trust you with my car keys or I trust you with my credit card or I trust you with this or that. To trust someone is saying that you have an ability and you will do the right thing. And so I put my trust in you. To trust someone is to say, hey, I'll let you drive. I'll just sleep while you drive. I trust you. To trust someone is to say, you know better. You tell me which way to go and I'll just go. You be the guide, I will follow. To trust is the greater compliment than to say you love someone. Trust them. Uh, Walking in his commentary says, 
uh, one is a fool to rely on his thimble of knowledge. And I love the imagery, the thimble, the little cover over our finger that someone who is sowing uses, a little cup, a little thimble of knowledge before its vast ocean, he says. How do I not acknowledge him? How do I keep from uh, leaning on my own understanding? I have to trust Him. God knows better. His knowledge is like the vast ocean. Our knowledge is like the knowledge that could fit in the thimble. And so we trust Him in this way. It's interesting that it says here, to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not with some of your heart, Not with the small things, but with all of it. And it is at times like this that we go and say, I still trust you, God. It is during this pandemic that we are living through. The outcry of the demonstrations that we've been witnessing and a time that seems so tumultuous and maybe we've never experienced something like this. But even at times like this, we say, I trust you. Trust is only trust when I say to someone, uh, it's the occasion on which I trust that matters. Ravi Zechariah says, Real trust in the Lord is only forged out of the fires of testing. In the fires of testing. So it's not just when that matters, but boy, especially at times like this, when we are going through hard times, when we might be going through difficult times, the fires and the testings, and it is at times like this that trust matters, that trust works. I think this message of trusting God uh, might not hit as deep if I preached this, so let's say six months ago, when life seemed all good and nice. And as we were planning our summer vacations, as we were planning what to do for the upcoming year and so on, We seem to have control. Why do I need to trust God? But now as we are losing control, we say, I trust you. Uh, Ray Ortland tells a story of a man crossing a frozen winter river called the Susquehanna River. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. But he's crossing over this frozen river. And he is so afraid that it might crack as he is going. This man is uh, is on his hands and knees, gingerly taking one step at a time, his ear close to the frozen ground so he could hear if the cracking happened so he could back up and he would not fall. And as he's taking this painstaking one step at a time, all of a sudden he hears this rumbling from behind him. And the sound is getting louder and louder. And he looks back and behind him is a man in a wagon, pulled by four horses, and the man is going full speed behind him. He is crossing the river full speed with four horses and a wagon, and he whizzes right by him. And here's this man on his hands and knees, trying to figure out, am I going the right way? Am I doing the right thing? The man in the wagon is a local. He knows the ice. He knows the thickness. He knows what time of year and the routes to take. He knows it is safe, and he goes. And oftentimes, God is saying, get on the wagon, let's go. Trust me, and we are on our hands and knees saying, is it safe? Can I go? Will this work? God, can I trust you? And he knows. Jerry Bridges 
says this about trusting God. Trust is not a passive state of mind. It is a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold on the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. And I love this. Not a passive state of mind. It's a vigorous act of the soul. I trust Him. I decide to trust Him today. My soul will trust Him when my mind says, maybe not. When my instincts tell me, hey, trust yourself. When the feelings in my gut says, hey, you know better. Are you sure God knows? And it is the vigorous act of my soul to say, no, I trust God. He knows better. And so we trust Him. And the blessings of trusting Him is told in verse 6, and He will make straight your paths. You follow Him. You follow Him and stay in His will. And when you take a bird's eye view, when you pause and look back, you say, oh my gosh, that was the smoothest way to live. I trust Him. God knows better. And so that is my prayer for all of us today that we would respond to God well during these times. Respond in obedience. Do as He says. and Go to His Word and say, what should I do? Not just, what does it say? Respond in your identity more than what you do, what you have, what people call you. You are a child of God in Christ. And respond in trust. When your mind says, hey, you lead the way, you take the wheel, and you say, no, God, my soul vigorously trusts in you, and I will lean on you 100%. And I pray that the gospel of Christ would bring us to this kind of place, that as we rely on him for all that we have, the salvation that we have in Christ, that we would say, ah, this is the blessing I have. He has made straight my path, and I will trust in you. And so let's make that our prayer. Let's make that the way that we live, could we? Let's pray. Uh, Lord, how we respond to you is so important. And God, we want to give our lives to you. We want to simply obey. Often we teach children to obey, but we forget to do so. We want to find our identity in you doesn't matter what people call us. doesn't matter what expectations others have. I'm a Christian. I'm a son. I'm a daughter of God because of what Christ has done. And I trust. I trust you. Lord God, we as the people of God, we trust you with our lives. You know. And so God, during these times, uncertainties, hardships that some of us might be going through, we trust you. We'll do as you say. We are your children. We don't want to let that truth, Lord, be forgotten. So God, we thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.